We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We are in a series considering Paul's second missionary journey in the book of Acts. And um, as the book of Acts narrates the expansion of the Christian mission from a small little group into a, a larger body that's spreading across the Roman Empire, at several points in the narrative, Luke draws our attention to the resistance that this mission encounters. We are going to explore that resistance together this morning as we consider our text, which is Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. And I would encourage you to open up to this text with me this morning. This is the account of the gospel or the mission of God reaching the the city of Thessalonica for the first time. And we want to understand the resistance, then clarify it, and then think about the Christian response to it this morning. So first, an understanding. Uh, After having traveled the nearly 100 miles on the Via Ignatia from Philippi to Thessalonica, the capital of the province of Macedonia and a thriving harbor city, as was Paul's custom, we see this in verse 2, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So Paul enters into the synagogue, he preaches Jesus, the one who had suffered and been raised from the dead, And then verse 3, note verse 3 at the end of verse 3, he says, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Messiah or the Christ. I want to just note the gospel, the Christian mission, is always about Jesus. What we proclaim to the world is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for his sake. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, this is about Jesus. Some years later, uh, in his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul writes, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And we see evidence of that here in this account in Acts 17 in verse 4. Some of them, that is some of the Jews, were persuaded. Later in that verse, a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. These were persuaded by what Paul had preached and taught to them, and they responded. The gospel is preached, the power of God is unleashed, and people respond. This is the pattern that we see in Acts. And then we're told in verse 4 that they joined Paul and Silas. This gospel creates a new community, a public social reality, what we call the church, that comprises Greeks, Jews, jailers, slave girls, leading women, and so on. And it's this reality that then as we turn in our text to verse 5, provokes a response and resistance. But the Jews, verse 5, were jealous, and taking some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Uh, To say that the Jews were jealous in verse 5 could mean, as most modern interpreters suggest, that they had feelings of envy at the gain and good fortune of the Christians. But the word can also mean, more literally, having zeal. 
The Jews were, were zealous, it could say. And, I, and it could be read in the sense that this positive and intensely interested uh, focus on something, that they were zealous because, in the words of the New Testament scholar C. Kevin Rowe, quote, political realities created by the defection of Jews and Greeks to the Christians, end quote. That is, they knew that such a new entity in Thessalonica was not neutral, that it could have potentially negative repercussions from the ruling authorities, and it was not lost on them that this movement had begun in the Jewish synagogue, that they could be viewed as liable. So they respond and they resist, and their first attempt is to take matters into their own hands. They stir up a mob, as we've seen in verse 5, and they go to the house of, uh, of Jason, seeking to bring them, that is Paul and Silas, out to the crowd. It seems actually that they're just planning a, a good old-fashioned attack of a mob to take matters and justice into their own hands. But they're disappointed when they get to Jason's house because they don't find Paul and Silas there. So instead, they take Jason and some of the brothers and drag them before the city authorities, verse 6. Thessalonica was a free city in the Greco-Roman Empire, which means that it was not directly under the rule of a Roman governor. Of course, it was under the empire, and, and in that sense, under the emperor. But it means at least in dealing with non-Romans, the body of city authorities, literally in our text, the politarchs, was, from one scholar's point of view, quote, the one seat of jurisdiction where severe punishment could be inflicted, at least on non-Romans, without invoking the governor. End quote. Convince this group of the city authorities about the problem, and they could then eliminate the problem of the Christians. So when they get there, we see their charge in verses 6 and 7. These men turned the world upside down, have, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. Jesus. They're turning the world upside down. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar. And they're saying that there is another king, Jesus. It's perhaps better to reverse the order. By proclaiming another king, Jesus, they are acting against the decrees of Caesar that he and he alone is Lord. And in so doing, they are turning the world upside down or causing a riotous upheaval. In fact, the shouting mob of wicked men, though gathered together by the Jewish leaders who, who went to the marketplace to find them, actually can now be turned to their political advantage as Exhibit A in their case against the Christians before the city authorities. They could say, see here, right here, we have evidence of the fact that the Christians are trouble. This upheaval right before your very eyes shows you that they are a threat to peace and to social order. The charge they put before the authorities is intended to have the authorities deal with them swiftly and decisively. It is a political charge. It is a charge of sedition, of inciting people to rebellion against the emperor by committing an act of treason because they are proclaiming a rival to Caesar's throne. If sustained, these charges would be met with severe punishment and even death. So that's the nature of the resistance to the early Christians in Thessalonica. But next, we want to clarify it a bit because it's more nuanced than that. 
there's actually a real sense in which these charges are false. For it implies this charge that Jesus is interested in Caesar's throne, which he is not. At one level, at least, if that were true, it would lead the early Christians to adopt a politics of revolt. But the Christians do not pursue this throughout the narrative of Acts. Instead, they submit to governing authorities and they seek to be faithful members of their communities. And we see this peppered throughout the New Testament. Interestingly and importantly, in our section in Acts 17, they're actually not found guilty of these charges brought against them of sedition and treason by the city authorities. And, and this is consistent with what goes on throughout the book of Acts. While the reality of social and political upheaval cannot be denied, and we see that again and again, and see it here, and we see it in Philippi, and in Lystra, as well as in Athens, and in Ephesus in particular, that cannot be denied. The charges, nonetheless, of sedition and treason against the Christians are repeatedly and routinely rejected in the book of Acts. Perhaps climactically so in the trial against the Apostle Paul, when King Agrippa says to the Roman governor Festus in chapter 26, verse 32, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Yes, the city authorities in, Thessal in Thessalonica are disturbed, verse 8, but they do not act swiftly with the requisite punishment for such a serious charge. Instead, in verse 9, they take money from Jason. He's giving security to the city authorities for the good behavior of his guests, that they will not, in fact, stir up riotous upheaval, as they've been charged with. And then Jason and the, the other brothers who are with him are released. And that release implies they're not found guilty of sedition and treason. So at one level, the resistance, the charges are false. But at another level, they are true. If you were with us during the Lenten season on the first Sunday, we considered the gospel proclamation given from Peter to Cornelius's house in Acts chapter 10. Peter proclaims that God had sent a word to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And then he says, this one is Lord of all. And we spent some time on that in that sermon. To say that Jesus, this crucified and risen one, is Lord of all is to directly counter, uh, counter Caesar's claim to be Lord of all. And we looked in that sermon at several of the titles used throughout the ancient world for Caesar, some of which were Lord of the whole world, or in fact, Lord of all. But there cannot be two lords of all, only one. Jesus will entertain no rivals, and of course, neither will Caesar. As the Jews say in John 19, 12, in Jesus' trial, everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So this claim at the heart of the Christian gospel that Jesus is Lord of all, is a threat to all claims to sovereign and ultimate authority in the world, and certainly to Caesar's claim to that sovereign and ultimate authority in the first century. The totalitarian dictators that we observed in the 20th century more recently are, are, see this as a threat as much as Caesar did in the first century. We think of the fact that they will permit of no opposition 
of how, for example, in the story of Germany in the 1930s, the church was co-opted by political authority claiming sovereignty and ultimate allegiance. And the message of the gospel was muted and distorted to become subjugated to that other authority that claimed ultimate power. This is always a threat. Jesus is Lord of all to any who would ascend to that position. How then is this opposition of Jesus to Caesar manifest in the first century? Well, we've said it's not in a politics of revolt, not by acts of sedition and treason, but on the basis of this theological claim that Jesus is in fact Lord of all and all that follows from this. I would say, had the early Christian mission or the Apostle Paul remained merely at the level of philosophy and theology, merely at the level of abstract truth claims, it is highly unlikely that the Christian mission would have encountered any substantial resistance as is narrated in the book of Acts, that it would have created any real problems. There were all kinds of philosophers in the ancient world peddling all kinds of truths about the gods and ultimate reality. The, the city squares, much like the square outside of our church here, were marketplaces for ideas. And we'll look at some of this in two weeks when we come to Paul's encounter in Athens. They were full of promoting strange ideas about the gods. What renders the Christian mission a genuine threat and provokes real resistance is the public and social ramifications of the claim that Jesus is Lord. There, theirs is a mission that knows no boundaries and it is creating a new community of people in the world who live a new and total way of life. To say that Jesus is Lord of all is to simultaneously make the claim that the Christian mission is a universal mission that has universal reach. And this is what we see in the narr their narration of the mission in Acts. And this is what Jesus actually commanded at the beginning of Acts. You will be my witnesses, he says, in Ju Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. To say that Jesus is Lord of all is to imply that the mission of the Christian church is a universal mission that has no boundaries. And that mission underneath that claim then produces a community of people in the world, what we call the church, which embodies an entirely different way of life. And that different way of seeing life and the world that is rooted in the claim of the Lordship of Jesus, a claim, by the way, that is rooted in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, is what produces the resistance. So when Jews, some of the Jews and devout Greeks and leading women in Thessalonica join Paul and Silas, when they attach themselves to this new social and, and uh, public reality of the church, this is what provokes the problem in Thessalonica. They begin to see the world through the light of Jesus's resurrection and lordship. And they live into this community that is now embodying the truth of that lordship in very tangible ways that was different from an arrival to the ways of life around them. And it is in fact this public social reality of the truth about Jesus embodied in the church that threatens to turn the world upside down, as their detractors say in our text. I want to give you two examples from our text from last week in thinking about this threat to turn the world upside down. In the encounter in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, there were three conversions in Philippi, if you'll remember. There was Lydia, 
the wealthy woman at the beginning of that encounter. Then there was a slave girl who had this oppressive spirit cast out of her. And then there was the Philippian jailer who was a Gentile. Luke, as he narrates this encounter in Philippi, is communic communicating something very subversive and powerful about the Christian gospel and the community's subversive power with this combination of converts. During this era, Jewish men would say this prayer every morning. I praise you, God, that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That prayer of the first century Jewish men reflect, is reflected and the attitudes behind it are reflected in the Greco-Roman world as well. Plato, the great philosopher, is reported to have said, quote, I thank God that I was born Greek and not barbarian, free and not slave, male and not female. Who was converted in Philippi? A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Deeply subversive of the values of the day that were, ref were reflected in both Jewish and Greek culture of that day. There is a powerful claim being made that the Lordship of Jesus is subverting those social hierarchies and structures that divide and subdivide people into the haves and haves not, have nots. A woman, a slave, and a Gentile brought into the new community of, the, of God's people through the power of God, by the people of God, through the word of God, as we saw last week. The social stratification of the Greco-Roman world is being exploded by the reality of the power of the gospel of Jesus as Lord. And Paul writes about this in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 11. He says, here, that is in the church, in this revolutionary new community of the people of God that is public and social reality, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This gospel is so capable of disturbing the social order that Paul will send a slave back to his master. And he writes about this in his tiny little letter called Philemon. Philemon is a Christian owner of a slave and Onesimus was that slave. And Paul had encountered Onesimus somewhere else and is sending him back to his master. And he says to Philemon, Philemon in this letter, I want you to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. The power of this gospel to subvert the social strata of the day was explosive. And we see that in Philippi. We see it in Philemon. A second example of the way in which this new way of life that's unlocked in the power of God through the gospel, we find in Acts 16 as well in the, in the encounter with the slave girl. She was possessed by a spirit. And this spirit enabled her to give people knowledge of the future. We're told in verse 16 that she brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. And I want you to understand that this was common in the Greco-Roman ancient world. These practices of divination were a large part of the fabric of daily life. And they were also a large part of the economy of the ancient world. However common though, and however much a part of the fabric of daily life, these practices were inconsistent with the claim of the lordship of Jesus, that he was in fact Lord of all. And as this universal mission is taken out into Caesar's realm, it's confrontation with practices like this, this kind of fortune telling that people would go and pay for these services was no small matter. The owners of the girl 
seize Paul and Silas, and they drag them into the marketplace in Philippi before the rulers, much like Jason and the brothers in the Thessalonica encounter were brought before the magistrates, the authorities. And they say that these men are guilty of a serious charge of disturbance. They are also disturbing the social order. In verse 20 of Acts 16, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. They're disturbing the peace, disturbing the way of life that we know and love and cherish. And these kinds of social disturbances would be met with, with strong force in the Greco-Roman world. Rioting was a significant violation of Roman authority and could be squelched in a moment. And so they're bringing a serious charge. And they say they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. They're disturbing our society. Fundamentally, we know what's going on with them. Actually, they're disturbing their way of economic gain. We're told that these men actually made a lot of money through this slave of theirs and her spirit through which she could do fortune-telling work. In the story of overcoming slavery in our own nation, if you know this history, the threat to the economy exp exponentially increased the resistance to abolition. And that same dynamic is going on in Philippi. It was the threat to their way of economic gain that led them to resist so deeply the Christian gospel. The Christian mission and church threatens to unravel a way of life that is central to the economy of the ancient world. You read ancient Greco-Roman literature and there is time and time again mention of these kinds of diviners or fortune tellers that people would go to, these oracles, and they would pay for their services. This was a substantial, a substantial part of the Roman economy and it was being undermined through the Christian proclamation as we saw in Philippi. So this also was subversive. And these dynamics that we've seen in Philippi are no doubt at play, in part at least, in our text in Thessalonica, when some of the Jews and a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women join Paul and Silas in this community that's organized under the reality that Jesus is Lord of all and beginning to live out publicly that new way of life in their communal context. It would clash and conflict with the way of life in the Greco-Roman world under Caesar. It was not sedition and treason, and the narrative of Acts makes that clear, as I've said over and over again, but it was a genuine clash and conflict. So while the opponents in Thessalonica had it slightly wrong, they were nonetheless rightly provoked that they were encountering something that was a force that would begin to unravel the world of their day. The third question is then how did they respond, these Christians, to this resistance. They didn't fight back. They followed the example of their Lord and ours, their king who taught them to turn the other cheek, to be willing to be mistreated. In fact, their king himself went to a Roman cross to encounter a humiliating death, unjustly, of course, but he did so in a moment of bearing witness to a new, kind of king, a new kind of kingdom and to a new way of life, to a new kind of power that's breaking into the world. It was not a kingdom like other kingdoms, for in this kingdom the first would be last and the last would be first. The least would be the greatest. The ones who were in authority would not lord it over those under their authority, but would rather become servants like their master who took up the towel around his waist 
to wash his disciples' feet on the night before he was crucified. This was unlike the Roman Empire, where peace was propped up by military might and oppression and violence, and everyone in the empire knew it, whatever the propaganda was. To the contrary, this other king and the kingdom that he was leading really was, in a sense, turning the world upside down. These early Christians, in promoting the peace of this king, which contrasted so deeply with the peace of Rome, bore witness by being willing to suffer for their king because they knew his love and they loved him in return. When the resistance was encountered, and this resistance increased more and more as we read our history, they followed Jesus' example by bearing the cross, facing persecution, and death itself with serenity and confidence in the living hope that they enjoyed because of Jesus's resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus was the bedrock of their new way of life. It was what grounded them and motivated them to engage in this universal mission and to live out publicly and socially the reality of a revolutionary kind of community unleashed in the world through the power of God. Resurrection was the bedrock of their willingness to suffer and to bear witness faithfully to this other king. That was one of their responses. Also, their response to this resistance was that they did not, it did not deter them in the slightest from carrying out that ongoing work of mission. Paul and Silas, as we saw last week, were beaten and then thrown in jail in Philippi. They stayed in that jail when the earthquake happened in order to care for and preserve the jailer's life and to lead him in to the new community of God's people. Then they traveled on the 100 miles to Thessalonica, and there, as we've seen, they encountered genuine resistance. And there was a, a riot that was developing to get them punished, maybe even killed. And so what happens after that riot and that encounter? We didn't read verse 10, but look at verse 10. It says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. In other words, they just kept going. They went and did it over again. And then they did it again. Paul will do it in Athens. Then they'll do it in Corinth. They'll just keep doing it. This doesn't deter them. This kind of resistance and opposition, they understand it. They expect it. That rather, they're so convicted in the reality of Jesus, their Lord and their King, this other King that they declare, that in his power and through his spirit, they continue to press on into the mission, whatever the resistance that they encounter. Paul was stoned earlier in his first missionary journey in Lystra. And he gets up and he keeps going. He continues this work to bear witness because they know in whom they have believed. They know this other king is in fact Lord of all. And they know that whatever opposition is faced by them, that the response of bearing faithful witness through their own suffering, not through coercion, not through taking the sword. When the disciples took the sword in the garden of Gethsemane, what did Jesus say? Put it back. That's not the way my kingdom works. Not in this work of coercion and power and dominance. And unfortunately, we have to be honest and say that much of our history in the Christian church took that route and did not produce the kind of fruit that we would like to, be, to say that it had produced. That is rejected in the narrative of Acts for a response that is bold and courageous, but one of bearing witness to the light and the truth. One of holding up a crucified king, not only in the words that were proclaimed, but in the manner of life that is lived in the social and public reality that is the church, the people of God, that includes loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. We see this modeled all of the time in our world today, in areas of the world where the church is persecuted. So often when you ask Christians in places where they are persecuted for their faith, what can I pray for for you? What is their first response? 
Please pray for our persecutors. Well, who are they modeling? Not a, king of, not a kingdom of this world, but they're modeling their king, Jesus, who taught them how to, to live. They're living a life of faithful witness, bearing up in this place in a manner that causes genuine resistance, but is not seditious or an act of treason. It is fidelity to the king of kings, the one who is Lord of all, the crucified and risen one. And we are invited into this community. Sure, there's resistance, and I'll leave that for mostly your own follow-up and imagination and thinking in response to this message. But we encounter resistance, especially often in the world of ideology and philosophy that wants to exercise hegemony over the culture around us and suggest that any opposition to that should be squeezed out and silenced. Yeah, we, we, we encounter resist, resistance. But the response is not to take the upper hand in power or might in a worldly sense, but it is to walk with Jesus, to embody this truth together in a revolutionary community in which a woman, a slave girl, and a Gentile are embraced by the love of God and to demonstrate this new way of life to our world around us. And it will indeed prevail and unravel and subvert the norms of the day that are infused by the powers of darkness. This is our privilege and our calling. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for the witness of these earliest Christians who in the, the face of resistance continued to proclaim Jesus as Lord and who in their life together revealed the reality of that truth. Lord, we pray that you would so empower us by your spirit that we would be in fact like the church that Luke portrays in Acts 2 that is devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers that is bold to open its mouth and courageous witness to the world, but that is willing to lay down our lives for the sake of this witness, to love even our enemies, that we might bear witness to the true kingdom and the true king. Give us grace to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.